Okay, thanks for coming. Um, I was talking with someone uh, uh, yesterday, and um, and basically what came out of the conversation was the following, which is that, uh, you know, Hashem basically, Hashem has his own rhythm. God has his own rhythm in terms of dealing with us, and uh, it's often it's often not according to the, the timeline and the, the set expectations that we have. And a lot of times that, um, that, that becomes very frustrating to us because we want certain things right now or what we feel is a, we'll, we'll write a reasonable amount of time, you know. We're, we're very giving in that way. But, but by a certain point, it should have happened already, whatever it is that we want to happen. And if it, hap- if it hasn't, then, then we... We, um, we often see that as uh, God punishing us. And it's, um, it's not always the case. In other words, God has His rhythm. We have our rhythm. But if we confuse God's rhythm for us being punished, then a lot of times that creates a, uh, an adversarial relationship that doesn't really need to exist. So... So this is this is really so much at the core of our um, of our of the human condition, really. What it means to to just go through life. Um, so one of the solutions of, to this is to realize that the the core of our life, the whole purpose of our life, the whole truth of existence, is really our relationship with God. Himself, as opposed to our relationship with our own expectations and our own goals. I was lying in bed. It was time to wake up. And, you know, for a lot of us, I think that, uh, I think that if one were to um, photograph or x-ray one's waking moments, what goes through someone's head when they first wake up in the morning? From the period when they wake up, open up their eyes, till the time that they get out of bed in the morning, that that would be such a blueprint to the person's soul. Um, You know, uh, it's it's uh, it would be an interesting experiment just to record what went through your head from the time you opened up your eyes to the time you physically got out of bed in the morning. And and uh, I I should try that, actually. (laughs) I'll tell you something. It says that um, you should take your firstborn and bring it to God. This is a, a mitzvah. Uh, and um, the original Rebbe says about this, that one should take one's first thought in the morning, their, their first birth of their conscious minds in the morning. Their first thought would be their firstborn. And to find a way to bring it to God. In other words, whatever you're thinking about, it doesn't... We're assuming that it's not about God. Whatever you're thinking about, find a way to connect that thought to God in a positive way. Whatever it is. And that would be bringing your, your first to God. Your first fruits to God would be another way of saying it. That's the original Rebbe. So, I was having one of these conversations with myself. And, and there were X number of things, X number of uh, business projects pending. And I was thinking, well... I don't seem to be getting out of bed that quickly. <laughs> what's, uh, what's immobilizing me, you know? I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about all these 
various things, and right now none of them seem too promising to me. You know, so maybe there's fear going on. Doesn't seem like any of these things really, uh, really have much hope of going. And then I thought to myself, well, wait a second. What's what's really going on? There's God. God's right there. And I was sort of thinking these things through in the presence of God. You know, God was part of this conversation. And um, and I thought, you know, God. Th- this relationship that we have, you and me, or you and all of creation, whatever it is, it, uh, this, is the, this is the essence of life. And not only in this world, but in the next world also. Because it doesn't stop after this world, our relationship with God continues. In fact, it doesn't just continue, it intensifies. So, th- that's the essence of forever. And now here's the point. I then realized, if that's, if that's everything... If that's truly everything, then what a mistake I'm making by looking at these various things going on in my life at this moment, which is really like chitsonios, like outside stuff, and saying that these things are the success, the potential success of these things are really a referendum of my relationship with you, God. If these things go, then, then we're on good terms. Right? If these things don't go, then clearly we're not on good terms. And I realize that that whole construct, that whole construct is what I like to call bad math. That's just bad math. You know, it's not, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Because the essence of our relationship with God, of existence, of everything like that, it's deeper than what's going on. It's deeper than whatever project is going or is not going. So, so we know that, but, but life itself, the circumstances of our life, it's like, it's so sticky, it's flypaper. We're, we're walking through flypaper constantly. And all of the circumstances and situations of our life are sticking to us all the time. So that our focus just goes to that thing. Let me give you an example of what I was we see this in the Parshan. Parshas B'Shalach, it's called, this, this Shabbos that we just had is called Shabbos Shira. Um, and um, there's a, a, an ancient custom, minig, to feed the birds. By the way, you're supposed to do it before Shabbos, and then, but it says even after Shabbos you can do it. So if anyone didn't feed the birds and they want to be part of this, uh, this custom, you can even do it today. So, so, so why are we feeding the birds? Now listen, listen to the logic of this, okay? Um, Hashem, Hashem gave us the manna, which came from heaven, and started falling, and it was really to uh, carve into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, the notion of trusting God, that every single day He's going to provide for us. And it was a really interesting way it came down. If you saved it for the next day, it would spoil, like it would get all wormy. So you couldn't use it the next day. So you just had your needs, your day's needs, in its day. Okay? And then you had to trust that it's going to come down the next day. Well, it came down every day for 40 years. You know, so this, like, really, really helped shape, you know, just 
our, our national consciousness, our, our, the Jewish soul in terms of trusting God. Now, what's the exception? It didn't come down on Shabbos. On Friday, you'd get a double portion. On Shabbos, it didn't come down. Now, the first Shabbos that happened, there were two, two wise guys among the Jewish people, uh, uh, Dasan and Aviram, who were trying to constantly undermine the Jewish people at every turn. Now, what they did was, since any of the man that you held over for the next day turned into worms, right? So it was no good. But the, the, the stuff that you held over for Friday until Saturday, until Shabbos, that, that worked, right? Because it would last the next day. So the first Shabbos, Moshe told them, there's not going to be any, there's not going to be any man there. Okay? So what do Dasim and Aviram do? Bless you. They take some of their man, right? Some of their double portion from the Friday stash, and they go and they sprinkle it out early morning on Shabbos morning to make it look like the man had fallen. So that everyone will come out and they'll say, wait a second, Moshe said man isn't going to fall on Shabbos. Here we clearly see it did fall. Right? Now this is, this is the, um, in their best case scenario where, the, where their plot works, right? Then all the people will start buzzing. Well, wait a second. Moshe said it's not going to fall, and it did fall, and therefore we can't trust what he's saying. He's making this stuff up. It's not coming from God, right? This is what they hoped. What happened? Birds came before anyone could see the man that they had scattered Shabbos morning, ate up all the man, and so this whole plot of theirs didn't work. So as a reward to the birds, we, we feed the birds this Parsha as a, as a memory of, of, of what they did. And I saw even another opinion from Rabbi Kitov that he said that the fact that birds chirp every single day, they're singing praise to God, and that's their reward. Their reward is that they get to chirp praises to God every single day as a lasting reward for the good thing that they did. Okay, but, but I went past the point that I want to make. Let's just backtrack one second. So, let's get back inside the plot. The plot is, we're going to put out man, bread from heaven, on the ground, and then everyone's going to say, uh, everyone's going to say, well, wait a second, Moshe says it doesn't fall the seventh day, here we see it did fall the seventh day, we can't trust Moshe, he, wait a second, there's bread falling from heaven! <laughs> and it even fell the seventh day! That's the point! Do you see how we're in the middle of this awesome miracle, bread falling from heaven, even on the seventh day? And somehow we found one point, which is like a little bit peculiar, and we're delving into all of the intricacies of this thing that we can't understand. And meanwhile, we've missed this entire miracle that's literally enveloping us. So this is life. This is life. You know? It's like, oh yeah, I walk and now there's, there's this and then there's, wait, there's that and then there's this and now I'm not thinking about the big, big picture anymore. What um, Rebbe Nachman talks about expanded consciousness. I lose my expanded consciousness. I'm now in a place of constricted consciousness. I can just see the things that are in front of my face, right? It's this situation, and it's that person, and I'm like, tight, right? 
But meanwhile, where did the fly paper come from? Where did flies come from? Where did time and space come from? You know? We lose track of all of that. There's something that... Uh, I, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. I want to I make a vote in a second. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of research on this uh, subject. Okay? There's something very interesting in this, in this week's Parsha. If I, if I were to ask, I'm not going to put this to a vote, but I have a very strong sense that if I were to ask what the greatest miracle God ever performed outside of creating the world, what the biggest miracle God ever did, single miracle God ever did, I think a lot of people, maybe the majority, would vote for the splitting of the Red Sea. This is, in the popular consciousness, People identify that with the, the miracle, the, the paramount miracle. So if you, look at the, if you look at the account of the splitting of the Red Sea, you see something really amazing, which is right after God split the sea and right after we sang, just pick it up at the, that's where everyone stops reading, right? Read the next passage and you'll see something very, very surprising. It says that um, Moshe led the Jews, into the wilderness of Sur, and they didn't have anything to drink for three days. And they got, you know, thirsty. They got kind of edgy. Where's the water? We're in the middle of the desert. And they, they got upset. Now, one has to ask, why did God, after the splitting of the Red Sea, the greatest miracle ever, arguably, put the Jews in a situation where they didn't have any water to drink for three days? I mean, besides the, the irony of it, right? They've just been surrounded by water, and now there's no water. It's, you know, it's, besides just that level of it, what's going on? Why would God do that? So now, here, I want, I want to ask you guys a question. It's a real question. I want you to raise your hands. I'm wondering, what is, what is the harder experience for one to go through in life? A hard time that's preceded by another hard time? Or a hard time that's preceded by an exalted great time? So, by a show of hands, who says that the harder, the more difficult emotional experience is a hard time that comes after another hard time. Raise your hands. Who says the harder emotional experience is the hard time that's come after like an exalted great time? I, I, I would agree. I would agree. I think that the, the few people who I asked up until now, this, this sort of supports that. So in other words, in other words, it's an even harder time. It's a hard time coming because, you know, one of the things that we, we go through, and I think this is human nature, is that when things are going well for us, we go, ah, finally, got it right. I got it right. Life's on track. This is it. I'm on the Good Time Express. <laughs> it wasn't easy to get a ticket. 
finally got on the train, and then when the Good Time Express all of a sudden breaks down, it's like, what? <laughs> I think that one of the, one, now that I'm, I'm sort of thinking through it, I think one of the parts of it is, I think that the reason why, by the way, those, those of you who uh, are listening on tape, it was, I think, about 98% said the hard time following the good time was more difficult than the hard time following the, the other hard time. Um, I think one of the reasons why, why that is, is also because there was a hard time before the good time. In other words, in other words, let's expand the question. It's not just that the sea split and now everything was going great and then where's the water? It's that the sea split and things finally started going right after so many hard times beforehand. We earned that good time. We earned it. Or we feel that we earned it. So there's a double, there, there's a double um, level of sort of like uh, emotional discombobulation or spiritual discombobulation that takes place. One, that the good times don't seem to be lasting, and I'm back to the previous time. That that's the real essential reality is the hard times. And now I'm back into that. And this good thing that happened was maybe just a dream, you know? You know, um, I heard Rabbi Green say one time, you know, you know when I was growing up, I, I always saw this on TV and in movies, people crying at weddings. And uh, it seemed like a cliche. And then I got older and I started crying at weddings myself. <laughs> Why do people cry at weddings? So I, I heard Rabbi Green say the following. Um, he said that uh, his, his opinion is that um, there's so many tears that you didn't allow yourself to cry up until the wedding. So many hard times that you went through, or the people went through, or the ones who are closest to the couple, the parents, whoever it is, the best friends. And they went through so many hard times that they didn't cry during. And now, all of a sudden, when it finally works out, you have permission or you give yourself permission to cry all the tears that you didn't cry getting up to that moment. It's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. So, so let's, let's backtrack for a moment, which is, which is this notion that, that the essential reality, the essential reality is this ongoing relationship that we have with Hashem, and yet all of our Kishkas, all of our inside, all of the momentum in our life comes to make the immediate circumstances of our life the referendum and the prism through which we see that ongoing relationship with God. Now, part of that is good. Part of that is the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to, if our life goes into sort of like, you know, you know, if the needle starts going to the red zone, if things start really dropping, we're supposed to look at our activities. And if people start behaving toward us in a way that's sort of like, 
you know, like they don't want to talk to us, they don't want to be with us, or whatever it is. We're supposed to see that in a very instructive way and look at that and say, how is that a reflection of God speaking to me? So, in a way, our circumstances are a real mirror of our relationship with God. And yet, on the deepest, deepest level, we're saying something else. We're saying that our relationship with God is so intense, is so central, is so strong, that it goes even beyond our immediate circumstances. So this is one of the great, and there are thousands of these in in Torah, one of the great balancing acts that we have to do. To be able to open ourselves up to accurately and rationally explore the immediate circumstances of our life as telling signs for when God is trying to communicate to us through the different situations of our life, and when we shouldn't make that the final statement in terms of actually defining our relationship with God, which is greater than everything. You know, Reb Shlomo was teaching many years ago, and I saw this in a transcript, something very, very deep. It says, it says in the Gomorrah that on some level, you can only really truly understand the depths of a particular mitzvah if you've made a mistake in that mitzvah. If you've made a mistake in that area of your life, then you're actually able to see the subject in a deeper way. You know, we talk about every once in a while the concept of negative space. Negative space, like for instance, if you were to look at a sculpture... The space of the sculpture is the sculpture itself, which you can actually put your hands on. But a real artist, when he makes a sculpture, isn't just making the sculpture itself. He's also attuned to the fact of how are you going to see this patch of space carved out so that you're actually looking at the area beyond the sculpture. You're actually looking at the area where the sculpture isn't. And that's part of the aesthetic experience of experiencing the sculpture. That's called negative space. You see it in Torah also, in a very deep way. Like, for instance, the famous Medrash that says that all the letters of the Torah came to Hashem and said, we want to be the first letter of the Torah. And each letter stood for something else, but Hashem ultimately picks the word, the letter Bez, because it stands for, you know, blessed. And um, turns down the other letters. But, but now look at it this way. Now we've got a whole new way of looking at the Torah. Because instead of just seeing the first letter as Bayes, we see it as not an Aleph, not a Gimel, not a Dalit, not a Hay. That's being in tune with the negative space. Or with the white space. There's black. Remember the Torah is black fire and white fire. So, so it's an insight into the white fire of the Torah. This is the area surrounding that which is revealed. This is why on a very deep level you have to understand that every single letter of the Torah, every single word of the Torah is a chiddish, is a, is a, is a revelation. Because every single word of the Torah could be another word of the Torah. Every single word of the Torah could be a different word of the Torah. But God didn't pick that word. He could have picked that word. But he picked this word. Now, every single word is a Chiddush. Because every single word could be spelled a different way. 
But he didn't pick those letters. He picked these letters. Okay, now when you look at the Torah again, now your mind really expands. Because there are infinite possibilities. Every single moment, I'm talking to you. I could be talking to someone else. You could be someplace else. Think of the thousands, the billions, the trillions of things that could be going on right now. But this is what's going on right now. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's why halacha is so outrageous. Halacha means the path. I mean, it's translated as Jewish law, but that's like such a, it's a, that's a, criminal, that's a criminal translation of, of halacha. Halacha means the way or the flow. The fact that there are trillions, trillions and trillions of possibilities in this world that I can behave in any fashion whatsoever. And God is giving me this path, this path among the trillions of paths. That's awesome. That's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So now listen, let's return back to the teaching. The idea that once a person makes a mistake in a mitzvah, they're able to see the mitzvah in a much deeper way. Once a person makes a mistake in their life, in their relationships, they're able to see the relationship in a different way. Why? Because now they're, they've got a broader perspective and they're aware of the negative space, the space surrounding the mitzvah itself. And now they've got a deeper understanding of what it is that they're supposed to do. So now listen to what Rib Shlomo does with that. He says, so you know what? He says, he says, we're getting closer and closer to Mashiach. So he says, so you would think, you would look in the world and you would say, well, if we're getting closer and closer to Mashiach, people should be making less and less mistakes. He says, and yet, you see, we're getting closer and closer to Mashiach, and seemingly people are making more and more mistakes. He goes, ah, but think it through. They're making more and more mistakes, but now they're able to see the truth in an even deeper way than they did before. And that's the Mashiach consciousness. The deeper understanding of the truth that comes after a mistake. The sea splits. We go for three days without water. And then a very interesting thing happens. God starts teaching us some Torah. He teaches us three categories of Torah before we get the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is coming in a few more days. We get a sneak preview. We get the halachas of Shabbos, of monetary laws, and also of the paraduma, the ultimate chok, the ultimate mitzvah that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The mitzvah that it says even King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, didn't understand. How does that work? Everyone knows there's such a thing called Tumas Mace. It's if someone contact, is in contact with a you know, dead ant, a dead creature, or a dead person, whatever it is, then they have to get these, uh, this mixture sprinkled on them by the Kohen, and then they can go in the base of Migdash. Today, we all have this status. Every single person alive has the status of Tumas Mace. Every single person. So, um, so what's, the great, what's the great paradox? is that everyone who prepares this thing 
which brings purity to other people, the ones who prepare the cleansing become impure. So how could it be that I make the mixture which makes you pure, and yet I become impure? How could it be? So, the simple answer is because God says so. (laughs) And um, we can give our own explanations, by the way. I have an explanation. People have explanations to explain this mitzvah. But uh, ultimately, we have to say that that's only just a level within it. But since I'm on the subject, I'll share with you my, my thought. Which is, you know, especially in our generation, so many of us, including myself, didn't grow up in a Torah-observant home. And so we arrive at Torah from all sorts of strange individual pathways. You know, unique pathways. Everyone's got their own story, story how they came to Torah. I met this guy, or I went to this place, or whatever it is, and then next thing I know, you know, there I am on Pico. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is that there's a, there's a very great teaching that says that if a person returns to God out of love, and they're keeping the mitzvahs out of love, in retrospect, all of the things that they did wrong turn into mitzvahs. Because all of those things that they did, quote-unquote, wrong, that was the road that got them to the place to do something right. So everything in their past past flips over. Because that's, in other words, if I have to eat a hamburger on Yom Kippur to teach me never to eat a hamburger on Yom Kippur, that hamburger that I ate on Yom Kippur was, was a holy hamburger. Not, not in the moment that I was eating it. In the moment I was eating it, it was like a huge, you know, atom bomb type mistake. But from the perspective of never eating on Yom Kippur, it's, it, it, it was a mitzvah. Okay? So, so we are the sum total of everything that we did up until this moment. So now, now listen to this. Let's say for a moment, how could it be that this thing which impurifies me purifies you and this thing which impurifies you purifies me this solution this um this uh this sprinkling right how could it be because you know what i had to eat that hamburger in this example in order never to eat a hamburger on yom kippur but someone else who eats a hamburger on yom kippur that might just be a hamburger on yom kippur (laughs) That might not get them to a higher place. So that thing which impurifies ultimately brought purity. But for someone else, it may just bring impurity. So here you have like this very interesting dynamic that there's a very personal, very personal um, 
chemistry that's going on in terms of your soul, almost like an alchemy, if you will. You know, the alchemists were like these wild philosophers in like the Middle Ages, and they spent like hundreds of years trying to figure out how to turn lead into gold. And they really, that was like, that was it. That was like the penny stock exchange, you know what I mean? Like all the like, all like the crazy Wall Street types who, you know, that was their laboratory. They were going to turn lead into gold. So, and they never found it. And they were trying to create something called the Philosopher's Stone, which was this thing that they could just make the Philosopher's Stone. All they would have to do is touch the Philosopher's Stone against lead and it would turn into gold. And of course, it, it, it was a, a crazy dream. And yet we see this in the spiritual realm, that an Avera can turn into a mitzvah. An amazing thing. You can turn lead into gold in your own life. But it's a very personal chemistry. It's a very personal chemistry. You know? That path, that's why, that's why a person really has to try to be a good, fluent, good influence on other people, I think. Because sometimes you say, well, you know something? You know what? I'm trying to keep the mitzvahs and I'm doing these things. There's this stuff here that I, I'm not really keeping, you know? Now, you're my friend, so since we're good friends, why don't I share the stuff that I'm not keeping with you? <laughs> and we'll do together the stuff that I'm not keeping. Now, that's a very dangerous relationship. <laughs> because that stuff that I'm not keeping in the moment, I may eventually keep, and all those things will turn into mitzvahs, Right? But that stuff that I'm not keeping in the moment that I share with you, that might just, that might just remain lead in your life. That might just hold you back. So we have to be careful to really, really share the best aspects of ourselves with others, you know? And, um, and those, those sides of ourselves that we don't have completely together... You know, we just do the best with, you know. So, so let's get back to this paraduma. The sea splits. The sea splits. And we've got the greatest, the greatest revelation of godliness. Remember, an amazing thing. Rashi brings it down. Not only did every, not only did the sea split, Every body of water in the entire world split. And if you had a cup of water on your shelf, that split also. Every single body of water in the entire world split. Not only that, but the heavens split. The heavens split, and it says that the least learned person, the least learned person saw a vision of Hashem that was greater than the prophet Yechesko, Ezekiel who saw, like, the throne of glory. The lowest person saw beyond the prophet Yechezkel. So all the heavens split as well. And then we get three days with no water. I mean, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. But this is life. This is life. And so what do we learn after that? We learn, you know something, there's such a thing called the paraduma, and you're never going to understand the paraduma. God tells us, you know what? You just saw a vision that's one of the greatest visions that anyone's going to have in the history of humanity ever, 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 ever. Now guess what? You're not going to understand everything. 
This is... This is intense. This is intense. Because again, this is another one of these incredible paradoxes that we have to walk as Jews. As human beings. Which is the notion that we as human beings are exalted, incredible creatures. But ultimately, there's a limit. Ultimately, there's a limit to what we can understand. And we can't use that ultimate constriction, which inevitably happens in our life, which is inevitable, which is inevitable, we can't use that as a piece of wood to hit God with. When that happens, when those moments of, of finiteness happen in our lives, then we just have to be, we have to be like, okay, you know something? Then it becomes... A moment of humility. You know, there's a... There's a, a precious garden that Hashem has called humility. And um, it's... It's a garden that we don't like to go to. <laughs> it's like... we. It's just like, yeah, you know... Has anyone ever described a museum that's just like a great experience and all the while they're telling you how great this museum is, you're thinking, I'm not going to this museum because <laughs> I don't like museums. <laughs> you can tell me. You can tell me how great it is. And I'm going to smile while you're telling me. But I'm also telling you I'm not going to that museum. <laughs> um, but did you ever go to the museum? <laughs> And then you're like, hey, this is a pretty good museum. I don't really like museums. And I don't even know how I got here right now. But now that I'm here, that, you know, now I can see why they make museums. Humility is that sort of like, it's that, it's that holy waiting room that you have to wait in. But if it's the real humility... All the magazines are current. <laughs> it's not last year's magazine. <laughs> and it's all the ones you want to read. <laughs> this idea of waiting, which is so, you know, it's so antithetical to our essence. We're built to do. We're built to do. We're built to work. We want that. We need that. We need to be productive. We want to be productive. And when we have to wait, part of our essence feels as though it's absolutely being denied. It feels like our human dignity is being taken away from us when we're told to wait. But you know something? What I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to suggest to you to change the vocabulary in your mind and to change the imagery in your mind and to substitute the word waiting for humility. To substitute this really cramped, boring, horrible doctor's waiting room for this garden of humility. Because the truth is, is that 
within the weight, within the weight, there's so many beautiful things. There's so many beautiful things. And, um, and it just, it feels like, you know, we, we have such a thing, and, and it's even, it's in the Gemara. We have such a thing as cycles in the world, where you have, like, if you even think of the story with um, Yosef interpreting Paro's dreams, where you have seven fat years and seven lean years, you have such a thing as cycles in the world, economic cycles, things like this. You have such a thing, you know? Sometimes Hashem, for, in His great mercy and, and goodness, decrees on the world a certain period where it's sort of like, okay, now it's going to be this. Maybe we're in one of those right now. You know, if you read the papers, it seems that way. Maybe not. Maybe not. But maybe. So, I think that if that's the case, then we're entering into a time of humility. Now, I just want to tell you one teaching on humility, and then we'll stop. I learned this from Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who I've mentioned to you before. He was one of the great students of the Vilna Gon and got the, the whole Kabbalistic Masorah from the Vilna Gon. And he, um, he was a couple of generations after the Vilna Gon. He says a teaching from the Zohar, which is that God and the Torah are one. Okay? We even have a, a further teaching, which is not this teaching, which is God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are one. But this is, this is a separate teaching. God and the Torah are one. Now, how are we to understand that? You know, is, is God the scroll in the ark uh, in Shul? Okay, so obviously that's not it. So what is the Torah? The Torah is a manifestation of God's will. Okay? And one's will, what one desires, is so much in an aspect of who a person is, so much a reflection of the essence of a person, is what their will is and what their desire is. So there's a, a huge correlation between a person's will and a person themselves. So this is a very simple way of understanding it, but let's work with that idea. So God and the Torah are one. Now listen to this. God creates the world his first act in creating the world is to, is to, is to hide himself, is to be mitzamsim himself. This process of tzimtzum, where he sort of, where he sort of disappears. You know, kabbalistically, the story of creation is that God made a an empty space in himself. And in that empty space, he shone a ray of light and he, he created the world. But the greatest joke, the biggest Kabbalistic joke in the world is that that empty space is filled with godliness. <laughs> so even in the empty space, it's filled with God. But nonetheless, he made it in such a way that he couldn't be clearly and openly perceived. This was the idea of tzimtzum, of, of restriction. So what's the point? Listen to this headline. God's first act of creation 
was an act of humility. Was an act of hiding himself. You know, Rabbi Green jokes sometimes, he says, you know, if you look at the Grand Canyon, do you know one thing that it doesn't say? In the corner of the Grand Canyon, in big letters, by God. <laughs> like you look up at a magnificent sunset, you never see in the corner of the sky it say, by God. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite incredible, actually, that, that God's initial and ongoing act is this ongoing, incredible act of humility. What about when wicked people rise up and do terrible things? Who's keeping them alive while they're doing this terrible thing? Who is allowing them to live as they write in an article read by millions of people, there's no such thing as God? Who is guiding their hand? Who's allowing that piece of paper? Who's allowing their internet to work as they press send? I mean, it's the ultimate, ultimate act of humility that, that God creates all of this majesty and, and doesn't constantly, you know, I know I, I'm, I'm guilty of this myself and I know many of us are either do this or aware of people who do this where you get an, a good idea, right? Or an idea that you like and then it's sort of like, yeah, but what about that idea I just got? You know, like really God should be poking at our chests every single moment. Check out that Fiat, you know? And that's the worst of the Italian cars. And look at it go. I did that, you know? <laughs> I mean, we should, we should not be able to have a second of our life where there isn't a finger pounding at our chest. Over there! No, no, you missed it. Okay, over there! <laughs> and, yet, and yet, that isn't happening. That isn't happening. Now, let's go back to the beginning of the world to get uh, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver's teaching. So we said that God and the Torah are one, okay? So, so that means as, as, God, as God conceals his presence in this ultimate act of humility, so the word anava is the word humility in, in, uh, in Hebrew. So anava is 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 what so to speak gets spelled because the initial act of creation is an act of humility is an act of another so what is the and God and the Torah are one so another is the word that so to speak is spelled at the beginning so he says another it's spelled like this ayin ayin is the number 70 which is the 70 faces of torah nun is Bina, is the Shari, the 50 levels of Bina, of understanding of Torah. Vav, is the six orders of the Mishnah, which is the Talmud, which is the oral law. And Hey, the last letter of Anava, is the five books of the Torah. Right? So the word Anava, every single letter of Anava, spells out a different aspect of the Torah. And it's all, all present there at the beginning of the world. So, so just to review very quickly, God hides a lesson, hides a lesson 
But if we're alert and we keep our eyes open, we see it. There's this huge, huge, blaring headline, the splitting of the Red Sea. And then just sitting very, very quietly behind it are the three days of thirst that follow. So, so this is like a little, a little quiet, gentle PS to us about the rhythm of life. And then the teaching of the Paraduma, the fact that there's certain stuff that we'll never be able to understand. And God telling us that, you know something? That's okay. That's part of another. That's part of humility. But that's a garden. That's a beautiful thing. God says, I do it too. I do it too. I don't ask you to do things that I myself don't do. I myself am engaged in acts of humility all of the time, God tells us. So you know what? Don't think of it as waiting. Don't think of it as waiting. Think of it as, okay, you're in the garden of humility. And then just look. Look for those things to treasure in the moment. And not ever, chaz shalom, to make the immediate circumstances of our life a referendum of our lasting relationship with God, which is eternal, which goes from this world to the next, which never, ever, ever, ever stops. And never to make that mistake. To use the events in our life to the extent that we can get constructive, constructive ways to improve our relationships, but never to allow them to define, especially to negatively define, our most precious relationship, which is with God, which is with love, which is with beauty, and is forever. Have a great week. Yeah.